welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. Welcome to the ABCA's mini-series, Father and Son. In this series, we cover the coach-player and parent-child relationship through the eyes of the coach and their sons who played for them. This is a truly unique relationship, and this mini-series should be of value to any coach, parent, or player. Thanks for tuning in, and please enjoy Father and Son. Next up on Father and Son are Mike and Brian Roberts. Mike coached 20 years at UNC Chapel Hill. He's coached in the Cape League on three separate occasions, twice with Wareham, and since 2014, he's been with the Ketuit Cataliers. He's led Ketuit to three Cape League championships. The last seven years, he's also worked for the Chicago Cubs. Brian played for Mike for the Tar Heels in 1997 and 1998. He also played for one year with Ray Tanner at South Carolina. Brian was drafted by the Baltimore Orioles in the first round in 1999. Brian played 13 major league seasons coming up through the Baltimore Orioles system. He retired from baseball in August 2014. Welcome to Father and Son. Uh, Brian's nice enough to let me live with him. Uh, <laughs> left spring training on the 13th so um, he's got two old boys that love baseball and helps okay yeah brian how old are your your kids uh six and three okay because i yeah. i didn't realize you had a second one I, I saw you know i was doing some research over the last couple of days off wikipedia and saw that you had a son but i didn't realize you had a second one too how's it going with the second one yeah, he's good he's good uh they're um they're a handful but they're great. How about yourself? <laughs> I have a 17-year-old and a 14-year-old. Okay, cool. And and I'll get in that into that a little bit with both of you, but I think you guys both were ahead of your time as far as stealing bases, you know, because we stole a lot of bases at Evansville also. Well, it's fun to talk about. Yeah. Uh, um, we can talk a bit about I, I You know, I kind of got started at the Kansas City Baseball Academy in Sarasota, where we're sitting right now is kind of where my base stealing background came from matter of fact joe tanner who taught me a lot of it just passed away in the last couple of months here uh he's the guy uh, who invented um tanner t yes yep so anyway we're sitting here in sarasota where i actually started learning all that all this stuff and then brian took it and escalated it uh, when i was drafted by kansas city in 1972 and came to something called the kansas city baseball academy we're here with with mike and brian roberts and this is a mini series father and son we're talking to to father and son combos that have played and then co you know some guys have coached with each other as well and so i appreciate you guys jumping on with me today you're welcome we're glad to be here can you guys both talk about the decision for brian to come to chapel hill and and play for you at north carolina well, um, it was a difficult decision. I think, um, you know, we both looked at what was maybe best, uh, and, and the best was probably to go somewhere else. Uh, <laughs> I 
and uh, you you know that from playing for your father. And uh, I'd certainly talked to uh, lots of other coaches like Sonny Patero, who used to be at Ryder University. His son Chris played for me, and and uh, he Chris wanted to go away, and um, and other fathers. But anyway, when it came down to kind of the final decision. Um, uh, I think Brian kind of thought it was best and some people backed off of him as well at the last minute. And so it's a tough decision, but hopefully it ended up being a good decision. I'll let Brian kind of express the way he thought about it. Yeah. Brian, what was your perspective on all of it? Um, well, I mean, I think dad was kind of hit it on the head in a lot of ways. I mean, I, growing up as the son of a coach, I mean, I think at some point you, you kind of feel like, well, maybe it would be best to, to break free and go, you know, be your own guy and that sort of thing. But I was small, um, you know, five, eight, 100 and probably 50 pounds when I graduated high school. And I really didn't have a lot of offers out there. Um, in fact, we probably had to go um, begging for teams to and schools to um consider bringing me especially big schools which is where I kind of wanted to go having been around ACC baseball my whole life I didn't necessarily want to go to a small school and um, in the end um, you know you you go in my opinion as a player you go where they want you the most and where they believe in you the most and it was became very apparent that you know my dad believed in me more than anybody else out there and that ended up being the best place for me to be in a place where you knew you were wanted and knew that uh, someone thought you could succeed. And talk about that process a little bit. So you get to North Carolina, talk about the, the how you guys the handled the uh, player coach and then father son relationship. And Brian, you had a monster freshman year. So talk about that as well. Like how gratifying that is to have that type of freshman year uh, when you didn't have a lot of offers coming out of high school and just talk about the whole process, how you guys handled um, the father son relationship and then, how gratifying that was to have that type of year that freshman year. Well, from the coaching standpoint, it was wonderful to have a shortstop because you're always looking for a shortstop and a switch hitter, you know, that could run. And, and um, you know, I knew his strengths. Uh, and um, we had a really good class coming in that year. Kyle Snyder was coming in from Sarasota, Florida. And, um uh, he eventually was a first-round draft choice and a couple other guys that – so so we knew we had a really good freshman class. Uh, it was a good time um, for them to come in and mold together and play. Uh, the fall, according to Brian, and he can talk about that, he said didn't go very well. <laughs> I don't remember that much about the fall, and I never put that much strength in, you know, fall practice and games. Um but I just know that, that he worked at it. He got a lot stronger, and the strength factor was key. Uh, I always knew that he had the fundamentals. Uh, I don't think anybody knew about the strength factor, but I had seen Walt Weiss come through uh, the program at Carolina, and Walt was taller but not very strong, and, and he became a switch hitter while he was at Carolina and got really strong and he became a first-round draft choice. So I was kind of pattering at Brian a little bit after Walt Weiss and Chris Patero, two switch-hitting shortstops that had played for me previously. Um, but the strength was key, and then I don't know what happened in the spring. I'll let him explain kind of how all of a sudden uh, some really good things happened in the spring. 
And Brian, I was the same. My freshman fall was awful. Um, you know, and, and you, you maybe wasn't as bad as, as that, but I literally forgot how to play baseball. And my dad at one point looked at me and was like, hey, you may have to leave. Like, if you don't start getting better, like, you may have to leave. So talk about that, that first fall for you. Yeah, I think there was just a big adjustment all the way around. Um, you know, I went from being at home and, and when I was around the stadium when I was a senior in high school, I was coach's son, essentially still at that point. I knew all the guys, you know, but you weren't peers. You were on a different level. And, and all of a sudden, you know, you walk on campus and now all of a sudden you're a peer, but you're also still coach's son. And I think there was a lot of dynamics that were at play during that fall of trying to fit in with the upperclassmen to, um, to show yourself and prove yourself that you weren't daddy's little boy, um, who was going to go run and, you know, tell daddy everything. Um, you know, but at the same time I was coming in with a, with a tremendous freshman class that I, that I was more peers with. And, and so it was just an interesting dynamic, I think in a lot of different ways, baseball wise, it really, uh, dad may not remember, but it's as vivid in my mind as, as probably any part of my career was just how difficult the baseball part was that fall. And I think the pressure of trying to prove yourself, um, it, it just didn't work out very well. So I, I feel your pain. I understand. <laughs> tough, tough conversations. Um, but I needed to hear some of it and I played for my brother as well. Brian, who, who helped you slow down then? Cause I used a lot of teammates to, to help with that part. And yeah, you, you have that interesting dynamic of you're the coach's son, but you have to, to fit in with the guys that are on your team. Who helped, who helped you slow things down that first year? Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, um, there were a, a few, Justin Ranischewski, um, who took me under his wing quite a bit. Uh, he was a, a infielder as well. And, uh, he was actually a, fifth-year senior, I believe, that year. So he was quite a bit older than me, but he was kind of my my bridge gap between um, the upperclassmen and the, the freshmen and my dad and that sort of stuff. But really, you know, it, it was um, a huge transformation for me between the fall and the spring. I mean, I call it a God thing, to be honest with you, because really not a whole lot changed. Um, you know, I was still the same guy from December 1st till February 1st. Um, but all of a sudden I got off to a good start, you know, the first weekend, um, and got a couple hits and gained some confidence. And then that, that snowball just kind of started rolling down the hill somehow. And it just kind of never stopped that whole spring. And so I was very grateful that I was able to get off to kind of a quick start as opposed to the fall where I really struggled and um, I think that was probably the biggest key, as you know, confidence in the game of baseball is, is more than anything. The way you play has a whole lot to do with how you feel in between those two years. Yep. And Mike, can you talk about, I want to back up a little bit. I, cause again, I, you, you get a lot off Wikipedia. I, I read that Brian had heart surgery when he was young. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Uh, Ryan, we were actually, um, uh on vacation in Sarasota, Florida, just uh, right here where we are, just a mile away. My, I signed with Kansas City in 1972, was drafted by them, and my father bought a small condominium in Sarasota, and we vacationed there because uh, as a young coach without any money, we, <laughs> we went to where it was free. Exactly. <laughs> and um, so Brian got sick on the way down 
with you well what turned out to be pneumonia and we put him in the hospital in sarasota and the doctor uh they put him in a actually a oxygen tent which was kind of scary and uh he was nine months old and they found out he his his heart had a th thump that wasn't supposed to have and so uh, we took him back to chapel hill of course we had a major research hospital in carol at chapel hill at unc and monitored it for four years and then he had open heart surgery at five and yeah it's very difficult to see him go through those doors and uh, no guarantees he was coming out uh when you go in and patch up a heart so it was a it was a difficult parental experience but brian handled it great and his sister handled it great the parents struggled and then from there it was just for him trying to catch up uh ryan he was um somewhat i guess not really on the growth chart either weight or height till he was about eight years old because i'm not going to say it stunted his growth but it certainly uh slowed it down and uh so it took him a while to catch up after that but it was a blessing that we had great doctors dr ben wilcox at the university of north carolina chapel hill children's um uh, cardiac surgeon did a marvelous job and Coach Roberts, sorry about the Cape League season, but can you guys both talk about your Cape League experience? And then, you know, Mike, you were at Wareham, and I looked like 84, and then I was coaching at Falmouth in 2000 when you got there, and you had Fontenot, Ontario on those teams. And then you've had a really successful run at Katua with the amount of championships you guys have run, won. And then, Brian, can you talk about your experience at Chatham a little bit as well? I'll let Brian start off uh, with Chatham a little bit and Coach Schiffner. It's always fun to listen oh, to. Oh, yeah. Um, well, after my freshman year, I had the opportunity to go play on the USA team um, and went back to play on the USA team or try out again um, the summer of 98 and really um, was torn because I had an opportunity to play for Coach Ron Polk um, on the USA team. But – wanted to go experience um, the Cape League, you know, and I wanted to play with a wood bat and do something different than I had done the summer before. And so I decided to leave the USA team um, during the tryouts and, and headed to Chatham. And that was, I still say to this day, I think it was the best summer of my life um, when it comes to just the entire experience. Um, you know, dad mentioned Kyle Snyder earlier. We, we went up there together. And yeah, still to this day, he's one of my one of my closest friends and the pitching coach for the Rays. And I think he would say the same thing. It's just the atmosphere, um, being around guys from other schools, playing with a wood bat, all the scouts, um, to living with host families. The whole experience—it's it, almost surreal. Um, it, it's out of a—it's truly out of a movie, is what it feels like that league. And so I struggled a little bit. I mean, I didn't—I didn't have the greatest summer. I think I hit maybe 240, and you know. Um, yeah, but that's good for up there. 240 is really good. When you come off of, you know, college, when you're used to hitting 360, it feels like, <laughs> I mean, it feels like you don't get a hit. You know how it goes. So it's, um, I think that was the first real challenge in the, in the last couple of years was that of like learning to handle failure a little bit, um, with the wood bats. And we went, uh, we ended up playing in the championship series against Wareham and, um, the first two pitchers on their two starting pitchers on their team were Ben Sheets and Barry Zito. So it was just kind of gives you a little idea, people a little idea of the caliber of arms back then that we were facing every night. Um, and so it was, it was an awesome time. Um, as I mentioned, probably the best summer of my life at that point. I used Khalil Green as an example. We coached him for two summers up there and he didn't hit a hundred and that guy had a really 
pretty solid big league career uh, before things didn't go well for him. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's just an example. Like, you look at the top ten every year, the, the bottom part of the top ten hitters in that league are going to be 290, you know, and, and not hit 300. So you have to be realistic with the numbers that you put up up there just because you are facing – guys every night that are probably going to end up having a chance to maybe pitch in the big leagues. Yeah, it's, it's definitely the, the constant quality of um, competition is just higher than, you know, you've probably been around uh, on a daily basis until that point. And, and then you factor in that you've never had to use a wood bat on a regular basis. And, um, and the lights aren't all that great all the time. <laughs> that was my first game up there at, at uh, when I played at Katuit was at Chatham and the fourth inning gets going and it's a good game. I think Ken Vining from Clemson was pitching for Chatham and the fog rolled in and I'm, I'm from the Midwest and I'd never experienced, I'm playing left field at the time and they called it because a guy hit a home run and it hit the, the side hill there and right field and you hear it thud, but you can't see it. And so they're like, that's it. I'm like, what do you mean? That's it. They're like, no, like we're fogged out. I'm like, well, I've never experienced anything like that before. Oh, yes. We had, I don't know how many. We probably had three or four at least fogged out the summer I was there. It's, it's nuts. It comes rolling in, and you don't see anything for a couple hours, and game over. Seth Etherton struck me out on nine straight change. I had three strikeouts, and I swung through nine straight change-ups uh, for three straight at-bats. And I should have laid a drag bunt down at some point, but I just was like, it, you couldn't have told me that it was not a, a fastball coming out of his hand. And that was eye-opening for me because, again, you see these guys that are going to go uh, play for a long time and pitch for a long time. And it just was, was a new experience, um, you know, because we all had success, you know, with aluminum bats and then – you're going to get it stuck to you a little bit with wood, but you know, Mike, Mike, talk about how much it's meant to you. The Cape league has been, uh, Ryan, um, just what a privilege for me in my career. I uh, started sending players there in the mid seventies when I became the head coach at North Carolina, when I was 26 years old and I had always wanted to play in the Cape league, but my coach, Walter Rabb liked to keep players closer uh, in Indoor Valley and, and uh, so that he could go see us play in the summertime. Um, so I didn't get to play there. And so I began sending players there and I would go up and watch them play. And then I decided to take one summer off in 1984 when John Wilde, who uh, became kind of a second father to me and kind of the, uh, the father of, in my opinion, Wareham Gateman, really, his name's on the press box. And his family still supports that team, his wife, Patty. Uh, went there in 84 and had a had a tremendous team. I loved it. Uh, but, you know, I couldn't do that in North Carolina, too. And I had to leave early that summer because my mother was dying of cancer and she died uh, Labor Day weekend. And so I didn't get to finish the season, and then I decided after I left North Carolina to go back to Wareham again in 2000. And that's, uh, as you know, that's when I had uh, three pretty good players as well as, as others that I'm not mentioning, but I had a guy named Nick Swisher, uh, Mike Fontenot, and Ryan Terrio. That was my first baseman, second baseman, and shortstop. Um, and, uh, of course, LSU had just come off uh, – national championship and 
those two guys from LSU walked in there, never said a word, humble as they could be, and just played like crazy for us. And we had a wonderful summer. And then uh, when the Ketuit opportunity came up, I was working on my doctorate at the University of New Mexico um, after being out of coaching for a couple of years. And what a marvelous little village. And Ketuit has become my home, really, in many ways. Um, um, I love it there. It's 17 summers, and this summer is going to be really tough missing that summer, but I've signed a three-year contract, so I'll be there at least three more years after after this summer. But uh, the Cape League is the best amateur league in the world. Um, we don't see the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday pitchers that we used to see years ago that Brian was talking about, Ben Sheets and Barry Zito and those type pitchers up there. We don't see as many of those, but the talent is still very good. The 10 teams, it's marvelous competition. There's no overnight short trips um don't even mind riding a bus from katua to orleans and um the crowds have grown and grown i I hope this doesn't set it back too much but i I love katua and hope to be there for many years to come it's just a it's just a marvelous experience to teach and and uh, have camps every morning and i go to the library and read to children in katua and they're just just a you can't duplicate it, as Brian said. I mean, it's Norman Rockwellish League. It's definitely Norman Rockwellish in Katuit in our little village of walking everywhere and kids running all over the place. So uh, the Cape League is is means a great deal to me. I've been with the Chicago Cubs the last seven years as well, and those two opportunities, uh, I feel so blessed to to be involved uh, with the Cataliers and with the Cubs, Ryan. And I played for Mike Coots up there at Katuit, and then Jeff Trundy was actually the assistant for Mike. So that's how I got my job coaching at Falmouth, because Jeff remembered me as a player. So it's just amazing that how small the community is for baseball. And then, Mike, I've got my notes. You know, the thing that stuck out with me, besides how good uh, Fontenot, Ontario, or when you guys would uh, take infield, outfield, you would have the infielders like halfway in the outfield making throws to first base. Do you still have guys do that? I do, and some people look at me like, <laughs> gosh, what is he doing? And uh, I used to have my infielders at Carolina do that. Brian did that. Yeah, I still – they finish up with the infield. We finish up with the infielders, you know, about 20, 30 feet off the grass. Yep. <laughs> I liked it. They were showing arm strength, you know, and I would never seen it. And I was like, you know what, that's intriguing because if you have guys that have really good arm strength, like it's impressive to watch them take throws from out there and, and nail balls over to first base. Well, what I was trying to do with that, Ryan, is, for example, a, a youngster uh, like Nick Gonzalez that I had last summer is going to go most likely in the first five to ten picks uh, in a couple weeks. You take second baseman – who rarely get to show their arm strength um, and you put them way out in the outfield or make them go over to shortstop in the grass and throw, um, you know, for the scouts. I mean, it really is. And to try to get guys to learn how to backspin the ball to first base. And I've had a lot of scouts through the years say, wow, I didn't know that young man could throw until you put him out there. And I just upped him from a 45 to a 55. Um, so I think it, it really benefits the player, and that's my number one objective. And then I want to talk a little bit, Brian, you know, um, 
with your decision then to go to South Carolina and play for Ray Tanner, um, you know, can you talk about that process a little bit? Uh, yeah. Um, I had gotten back from the USA team at the end of uh, the summer of 97 and there was a few days left before school started and my parents picked me up at the airport and um, my dad at that point had not told me until then that, um, that he had been let go, but that they were giving him um, the 1997-98 season to, to still coach at UNC. Uh, so I knew at that point I was going to stay for my sophomore year, but I had no idea what I was going to do for my junior year. Um, and we had asked for my release to be able to uh, pursue other schools at that point. And so it was very, uh, it was a very interesting situation because the fall of my sophomore year really became more like my junior year of high school would have been if I was um, one of the top players in the country coming exactly. out of high school. I went on recruiting visits during the fall of my sophomore year of college. Um, I went to Miami a couple of other places. Um, my phone rang off the hook almost all fall from coaches all over the country, knowing that I was um, thinking about transferring. But I never could come to a decision. Um, it took me almost a full year to make that final decision. And it was based on a lot of circumstances and a lot of things going on. We had a tremendous team um, that Dad had put together at UNC. Our sophomore year, we lost in the finals of uh, the Super Regional in Miami before going to Omaha. So I knew we were going to have a really good team at UNC again my junior year. But it was just going to be too strange for me, I thought, to walk into my dad's office of 25 years and another coach being there. Uh, and eventually Ray Tanner at South Carolina basically – said, I, I don't really care when you show up, just if you want to come, come. And and we, my dad had kind of given me the idea that it had been a pretty stressful, you know, year and a half and that maybe I should take the fall semester off here. He knew I would still be eligible in the spring based on my credits and things like that. So I actually didn't go to school the fall semester of, of my junior year. I stayed in Chapel Hill and worked out and trained and um, worked at a gym um, to make some money and things like that. Uh, and ended up going to South Carolina in the spring. So I didn't show up there until January and just kind of um, moved right into the team. And Coach Tanner set me up to play shortstop, and I had a great experience. Um, Coach Tanner was phenomenal. South Carolina was great. Columbia was a great place to be, a great town to be in. And I got to experience SEC baseball, which was, um, at that time, it was kind of night and day to me from ACC baseball when it came to facilities and attendance and things like that. So you know, in the end, it, it truly was a blessing, I think, to have the opportunity to do something different that year. Do you feel like that got you ready for professional baseball then? And talk about that transition. You, you go from not being there all fall and then you get there for the spring semester. Can you just talk about how that got you ready for professional baseball and then just the transition with your new teammates at South Carolina? Yeah, you know, I really never thought about it that way until you said it, I guess. Um, even to this day, I never really kind of corresponded those two things, but uh, it probably did prepare me a little bit to just jump into the fire. And, you know, there's not really a whole lot of time to get to know people. And uh, they say, here you go, you know, you go out to shortstop and play. And that's kind of how pro ball is. Um, but the experience, I think, of South Carolina, just for the first time and being away and being under the authority and coaching of somebody else uh, before I got into pro ball, I think all of those things, plus just the challenges that, 
you know, that year before pro ball had presented with our family and, um, you know, that sort of stuff, I think all prepared me, uh, some for pro ball for sure. But as, as a lot of people will probably attest to nothing really prepares you for minor league baseball. Um, I, you go from pretty cushy bus rides and nice stadiums and good hotels and kind of catered to at an sec baseball school to going to, you know, low a where you're riding 12 hours on a bus with 25, 30 guys sleeping on top of each other and you get $20 of meal money. And, and that's about it. So my, it was kind of shocked, honestly, to, to me to uh, get to low, to low a baseball that summer. And it was a struggle. It was a, it was a battle physically, mentally, all of it. And, um, you know, when you're 21, you're capable of handling. I don't know that I'd want to go back and do it again, though. <laughs> and your dad played professionally as well. Talk about a little bit the conversations you guys had that helped you through professional baseball just because your dad had been through it as well. Well, yeah, dad played two years in the minor leagues and um, and swung the bat really well and played well. And then he went back for his third spring training and, and realized the way the minor league baseball works at times is that, you know, somebody who was a higher draft pick was going to get promoted before he was and um and he decided that wasn't what he wanted to do and and so he left and and i think that um having those conversations with him before i ever got into pro ball we were in slightly different circumstances i was the guy who was going to get promoted probably before somebody in his position on the flip side unfortunately um but you i had some background certainly of how minor league baseball works and um and how, you know, some of it can be luck. Some of it is uh, based on the pecking order and, and those sorts of things. But in the end, you know, I think if my dad would have given it five or six or seven years and continued to produce, I still think the cream of the crop, you know, raises to the top and they, and they will promote guys and you will make it eventually. But it's a long, hard road, especially for lower draft picks um, and guys who haven't gotten larger signing bonuses and things like that. It can be a real battle. And um, I was fortunate to be drafted relatively high and I had some good opportunities, but you, either way you have to go out and you got to play and you got to stay healthy and you have to perform. And then you got to have some breaks along the way at the, at the same time. And I think where base stealing is now people owe you and your dad, uh, you know, should owe you and your dad a lot of credit for that. Can you guys talk about just that a little bit, just the evolution of, of the base stealing part of it. And then also touch on when you guys did get a chance to talk on the main stage at the ABCA. Um, what was the second part of that question, Ryan? When you and Brian got to talk at the ABCA convention together. Oh yeah. And, and we're scheduled, uh, we're, I'm so excited. <laughs> Hopefully we'll be able to have an ABAC, ABCA convention. Brian and I are, have been invited to speak again in DC. Yep. Well, and people owe you a lot of credit, you know, where, where things are at. You look at stealingbases.com. A lot of that comes from you guys. So it's gotta be gratifying for both of you. Well, I'll let Brian speak to what it kind of did for him as he grew up. And um, uh, I, it was so exciting, Ryan. Uh, again, uh, Kansas City had told me they were going to draft me in 1972. And so I graduated from North Carolina. And my wife and I took off for Sarasota, Florida, and spent six weeks prior to the draft at the Kansas City Baseball Academy and uh, Sid Thrift was running it, and Steve Boris was there. And, of course, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, Joe Tanner, uh, who came from Mississippi and taught base stealing and bunting. And what they did at the Kansas City Baseball Academy, and 
and a lot of people ought to look it up. It's the first and only R&D professional facility ever where owner Ewing Kaufman put together, uh, and I won't get into all the details, but it was basically go out on the baseball field most of the day, take your stopwatches, and and run everything live. So when I got here, uh, you know, I watched and watched and knew I wanted to coach, and the catchers were throwing live, and the, and the guys were running live, and the pitchers were live, and the infielders were live, and so you just ran over and over and over and over again, and you clocked it, and and they taught just new ways to steal second and new ways to steal third. Um, it was just intriguing, and I was able to take that and go into pro ball and use it for a couple of t- years. And if you go back and look at what the, quote, Academy League teams did, uh, they set uh, base stealing records like had never been set before. So then when I was fortunate, two years later after I left, uh, Kansas City in 74 to become the head coach of Carolina in 76, you know, we st- I started kind of, uh, I guess, a little bit of a new trend in base stealing, but base stealing back then was a big deal, you know, a big deal with Mari Wills and Lou Brock, and then Ricky Henderson came in, and Vince Coleman, and all the guys, and so I taught it year after year in my camps in Carolina and the teams, and then Brian grew up around it. Uh, I took it to the Cape League in 1984, and I think the the 2000 team that you saw in Wareham, we still holds the league record for 132 stolen bases in the Cape League uh, that summer. Um, so it, again, and and I'm really thankful that Matt Tellerico and a lot of people now are picking up the torch and teaching. Uh, base stealing. Matt's got a great new book out, and been, just been hired by the New York Yankees and. One of my former players, Todd Interdonato at Wofford's taking it. He, I, I coached him at UNC Asheville for one year, and he's taken it and run with it. So it's just been a thrill, and I love still teaching it uh, both with the Cubs and, and in Katuit. And I'll let Brian kind of pick it up from there on kind of as a kid and playing in the backyard and running between mom and dad. He used to love to just play pickle and at the beach and different places, and I'll kind of let him uh, – tell a little bit about his career and the evolution of his base stealing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I guess when I was a kid, I, I certainly wasn't thinking about the fact that dad was had any concept of trying to teach me base stealing when I was five or six or seven or eight, you know, running around playing wiffle ball and that sort of stuff. I mean, it was really at that time, it was just fun games for me. Um, and dad does did talk about playing pickle or whatever people want to call it, but, you know, learning to go back and forth, learning to um, anticipate throws or anticipate what somebody's going to do at the ball and, and that sort of stuff. And then I guess we really got more into the technical aspect of, of stealing bases probably maybe when I was, um, when he took our first travel team, maybe when we were about 13 or so was when we maybe started working um, for the first time on actual um, the technical part of getting jumps at second base trying to steal third that sort of thing so um it became something that i just enjoyed doing and and running the bases was something that i was going to need to do i mean in high school i was small i wasn't going to drive the ball very much if i got on i needed to try and steal second or steal third to make something happen and then you know that kind of continued into college and then and then into pro ball and um, I always loved growing up when I loved watching Willie McGee. I loved watching the St. Louis Cardinals, Vince Coleman, 
uh, Ozzy Smith, those guys, Ricky Henderson. They those were my, were my guys also, Brian. We're, we're the same age. We're similar ages. So, like, those were all my guys growing up as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it was the type of game that I just enjoyed watching. You know, I couldn't relate to the Mark McGuire and the Jose Canseco's. I enjoyed watching it, but I couldn't relate to that kind of game. So um, those were the people that I tried to model um, what I did after to some extent. And and I, I don't know, I guess the evolution of, of stealing bases in my career was kind of a gradual progression of, of learning new things, trying new things, being um, a little bit adventurous once you get out there and, and having, uh, having no fear to some extent of, of making a mistake or being embarrassed or whatever it might be. But, um, early in my career, you know, uh, when you're young in the big leagues, it depends a little bit on who your coaches, coaching staff is. I didn't, I didn't have a lot of freedom early on in my major league career. Um, from the coaching staff, it was a little more restrictive on my base running. And then as, you know, I got a couple years into the into the big leagues, and people had seen that I could have success running. Then you get that green light, and you get that freedom, and then you're able to do a, a few more things and and have some more fun with it. And that's kind of how it progressed, I guess, for me in my career. You know, Brian, I've gotten my notes. Kind of talk about you talked about maybe having the handcuffs on a little bit. Talk about maybe your favorite pro coach or manager. You know, one that maybe started to to cut you loose, but then. Talk a little bit about why the guys that you really liked as coaches at the professional level, why you liked those guys. It's kind of funny how uh, dad and I's uh, careers came full circle because dad had Joe Tanner uh, with the Kansas City Royals. And Joe Tanner was one of my first coaches with the, with the Orioles in, um, down in the low minor leagues. And he was still teaching the same base running and base stealing techniques that he was teaching with dad in the Kansas City Royals You know, 30 years before that. Um, about getting momentum and being able to um, how momentum affects your ability to steal bases as opposed to trying to steal from a standstill and things like that. So he was one of the coaches that really um, began. I already knew that even in college we were using momentum, you know, to steal, especially from second to third. I wasn't using it uh, a lot from first to second. Um, but he was one of the coaches that was fun to be around when it, when it came to talking base running. And then in 2004, Lee Mazzilli took over um, as our manager in Baltimore. Uh, he had come over from the and uh, he knew me from, you know, from their side. But he was the first guy that really came in and said, Brian, like, I want you to go be free. Um, I want you to, um, uh, you got the green light, just, just go. And, um, you know, it's kind of interesting because, my first couple years, um, and this isn't a knock on Mike Hargrove. I, Mike Hargrove was a tremendous man. Um, he just didn't maybe trust young guys as much as uh, I would have liked, you know, and, and I get that part. You know, it's hard to, to trust young guys when you're a major league manager right away. And um, But I felt like I had proven in spring training during those years that I could run. You know, they give you the green light in spring training, but just didn't quite have that same freedom. Uh, when the regular season um, kicked in. And so Lee Mazzilli was the first guy that really believed in me and I think set me on kind of uh, the course and the path for the next five, six, seven years of my big league career to really um, go out and play free and have fun and have some success. Brian, you have two kids of your own now. What do you want to see out of the coaches that are going to coach your kids when they, when they start getting into it? What do you want to see out of those coaches? Wow, that's a good question. I mean, um, 
you know, we've been blessed so far, the fact that I, I have a lot of time and my college roommate from North Carolina, who my dad actually recruited there, and my best friend is now lives in Sarasota and has five boys of his own, and they all play baseball. So we actually get to coach our boys kind of um, on the same team and, and have some control a little bit over that sort of stuff. And I think what we really try to do is emphasize the fundamentals of the game. Um, we want them to learn to work. Um, I think nowadays there's so much play um, involved, like with the travel ball and that sort of stuff that that kids don't understand how to work on their own at all in, in a lot of ways. So we want them to understand that it takes work at home. Uh, it takes work um, on your own to pull out a tee out of your garage or whatever it is and hit into a net or a wall uh, when nobody's looking. Um, but then also to realize that 90 you know, 9% of these kids are not going to play in the big leagues. And I talked to, you know, I've had the opportunity to, to give talks at opening days of little leagues for several years now. And I really try to emphasize that fact that, that this isn't the parents dream. Okay. So like the parents need to let go of their dreams. They had their chance. Um, you want to give your kid every chance to succeed, but, the, but there are a, a lot greater lessons that these kids need to learn through the game of baseball for the game of life more than anything. And so I think for us, we're really trying to teach them life through the game of baseball. And yes, great. If one of them plays in the big leagues or if 10 of them play in the big leagues, that's awesome. But um, in the end, that's not necessarily the goal because most of them won't. And Mike, talk about a little bit of the work you're doing with the Cubs, but also at the Cape level, what are you seeing with the differences now with, with the players that you're coaching as when you first started? Well, that's another really good question. Uh, I'll kind of come in behind Brian in the in the work habits. Um, I won't say the work habits have deteriorated, but they're very different. Uh, the added toward what you're working to accomplish is different. Um, I'm like Brian in the fact that. I would like to see more youngsters who are taught how to practice on their own. Uh, when I was growing up and a lot of, uh, a lot of Brian was growing up, it was more unorganized play and unorganized play is the best play yes. when youngsters going out in the yard, what I call backyard baseball, um, or they're, you know, they don't get to go down the block very much anymore because of safety like I did. Um, but the biggest difference is it was so unorganized years ago where now it's exceptionally organized. And I think there's a huge difference. I, I think that uh, you have to be self-motivated and I think when everything is coach motivated um, instead of individually or self-motivated, um, uh, I don't think you improve as much. I, I think you just can't be around coaches all the time. There's got to be some self-motivation with the players. Um, and that's what I look for with the Cubs. Um, for example, the last seven years being in pro baseball is I'm looking for guys that are there every pitch. And it's very difficult, Ryan, to find a player today that understands what it is to be there every pitch, whether you're in the dugout, you're playing offense, you're playing defense, 
you're in the locker room and you're studying the game instead of being on social media. So I think that's the biggest difference is there are fewer guys that are there every pitch. And that's also true in the Cape League. One reason I believe that we won the Cape League again last year in 2019 is I had the most young men that were there every pitch, both on the mound, in the dugout, and on the field uh, that I've had in years. Um, had a lot of wonderful young men, but to have a team that was there every pitch um, was really fun to coach. So I think that's the biggest difference is the self-motivation and kids that are there every pitch. And if you guys haven't seen In Search of Greatness, it's a documentary. It's on Amazon Prime, but they interview Pele, uh, Jerry Rice, and Wayne Gretzky, and they talk a lot about the unstructured play of what they did growing up. And I think all coaches at the upper levels now are talking the same talk with that that they would love to see at the, the younger age groups of giving kids more free play. You know, And you can add that into your practice plan as a youth coach where you do give them 10 or 15 minutes to, to work on their own, even though it might be a structured practice, you can give them a little bit of that free time to be able to do some things on their own as well. And I think that's what we're all seeing now with this generation of players is they haven't been given that opportunity. So they have a harder time being able to work on their own just because they don't understand what that actually means and, and how much better you can get working on your, your own as well with, with that part of it. You know, it's interesting you bring up that documentary, um, Ryan. Uh, Theo Epstein and, and Jed Hoyer and Jason McLeod, my, my bosses with the Cubs, uh, had all of us watch that in the spring training of 2019. Love it. And I love – it was phenomenal. I actually got a chance to see it twice – and I went back and really watched Wayne Gretzky with what he did in the backyard. And that was I, – I wish every youngster would look at that and see what Gretzky did in the backyard to learn how to play hockey. Um, and so um, I, I, I think we've got to find a way for youngsters to learn the game uh, that way again. And I believe as hard as this pandemic is – that I'm watching Brian work with his sons and they're six and three, but I, I hear him say, Jack's the six year old, you know, go out, uh, you go hit on your own. Exactly. Okay? Uh, yeah. Uh, go out there and do box jumps on your own. Um, and, um, and so I, I believe that this is a time that a lot of teams, even travel teams are doing zoom and they're, and youngsters are having to motivate themselves, self motivate themselves in the yard. Um, and one of the things also this pandemic may do, it may bring baseball back closer to home to where you see some, it may not be Legion, it may be called something else, but you may see teams playing closer to home and kids out on the field more instead of always in travel ball strictly because of not being able to fly and those type things now. So you may see some adjustments back to old-timey baseball a little bit in, in the communities uh, because of this pandemic. And I, I think a lot of us have thought that, that this may be one of the positives that come out of all of this, that kids do have a better understanding of, of that they can work on their own and, and still get better working on their own, which is going to help them outside the baseball arena as well when they get older, because they're going to have an idea of how to actually work on their own as well. And do you feel like that's probably the, the biggest thing that we can do right now to help grow the game of baseball is teach 
the young generation how to be able to work on their own? Without a doubt. I think, I know, I know I remember Brian, we had a brick house in Chapel Hill and he would draw a square on the back of the garage and go back there and throw on his own to learn how to throw accurately in that square. And I think that we need to teach uh, youngsters to do that. And, and I think something good will come out of this. The kids who love baseball, you know, will do it. And the kids who don't, uh, you know, they have, they're not going to have the help that they've been um, with, with team practice. So there, there are some good things that can come out of this. And I, and I hope it will uh, Ryan. And I hope through the ABCA, uh, which is, you know, you're, you're working full-time for ABCA, such a marvelous organization. I, I, uh, I feel the same way about ABCA that I do the Cape League is I think you guys have promoted baseball and continue to do such a fabulous job, just like the opportunity to do this interview. And Brian and I, when we spoke in 2009, one of the most exciting times in my life was in Nashville to be able to speak together with Brian um, in 2009. I mean, excuse me, in San Diego in 2009. Uh, it was a marvelous experience. So I think you know, moms and their sons, dads and their sons, grandparents and their and their grandsons. Uh, same thing, obviously, with granddaughters. Um, you know that you know, mom can play catch with a wiffle ball, possibly, and sisters can play, uh, or siblings can play. So, yeah, I think some good things can really come out of this, and I think ABCA is probably the premier organization to help promote uh, self-motivation during these times uh, and to practice in the yard. I zoomed with a youth team uh, a couple days ago, and that's exactly what I talked to them about. Brian, I did the same thing. I had a square on my parents' garage that I would throw tennis balls into, and I told them, you know, go in your backyard. And I asked them like, who's your favorite hitter at the big league level? And they're throwing names out. I'm like, well, visualize yourself striking out Mike Trout or pick a, pick a bat up and, and swing it and, and see yourself get base hits off Justin Verlander or Clayton Kershaw or, or whoever your favorite baseball player is. And that's my hope for the things now that we do. We do bring a little bit of that part back. What are some final thoughts that you guys have? It could be anything. It could be baseball. It could be parenting. Uh, it could be coaching. You know, what are some final thoughts that you guys have? Oh, man. Um, well, I think for kids, um, I would encourage them to get off the couch and stop playing video games. I'm not saying that they should never, you know, be on a video game. But in general, um, our kids spend way too much time inside, as you mentioned, what you and I did throwing against the wall or, or uh, acting like it was getting the world series and the bases loaded or striking out our pools uh, or Mike Trout or whoever it is, you know, those things we did a lot of. Um, and I just don't think that kids are doing that as much. So I think for the kids standpoint, as well as the parents standpoint, um, it's easy as parents to use those things as babysitting. Um, and it takes pressure off of, us as parents, I have a six and three year old. I get it, um, but to be honest with you, we don't even um, we don't allow at our house. Um, I, they're going to be outside. They're going to do something active. Um, and from a coaching standpoint, you know, work on the fundamentals, do the little things. But most importantly, um, you know, I have been around enough little league baseball now as a parent to see how intense it gets. Uh, please continue to let the kids have fun. 
the adults need to have fun. Um, it gets way too serious. Um, and I, I really hope that youth coaches will understand that they're setting an example for these kids. They're setting an example for them for the rest of their life as well for the parents that are in the stands. So uh, I think those would be some of the things that I would try to pass along to parents and coaches and kids. Ryan, what I would say in closing out is, you know, teaching youngsters just need to learn fundamentals and they have to repeat that over and over and over again. Uh, whether they're going to be 6'4 and, you know, 220 or they're going to be 5'8 and 160, fundamentals um, are, will always be the name of the game. It's the same thing in education. You know, you learn math as you go along and it builds up. And the same thing with English. Um, so I just hope that, you know, that kids will get out in the yard and, and as Brian said, and play and, and run and jump. And uh, Brian's a great example of, it worked on the fundamentals. I had a player last summer, Nick Gonzalez, I mentioned earlier, that wasn't recruited out of Arizona and ended up in New Mexico State, and now is going to go high in the draft. And his fundamentals were just so good, and he's 5'10", 180. So work on your fundamentals, enjoy the game, and um, and let's keep spreading the, the, the name or the game of baseball around the world. And then uh, – uh, I want a lot of these kids uh, that do that to come play for me to Cape one day or be on the Chicago Cubs or any of the other 29 major league teams. I can't thank you guys enough for coming on, and this was a lot of fun for me, so I appreciate it. Ryan, thanks for the invitation. And, um, yeah, this is fun for us, too. Uh, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I'm getting a lot older, and um, I, I'm just thankful to still be involved with baseball. Now I get to watch Brian teach his kids uh, baseball and and i'm sure your dad's enjoying the same thing so thanks for the opportunity and tell all the great people there at the abca office that i say hello okay thanks guys baseball truly is america's pastime we are all stewards of this great game i'm so excited to shine a light on these unique perspectives all of these guests show their passion and love for each other and the great game of baseball this is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks for listening to Father and Son, and remember to leave it better for those behind you.